Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. He recently attended a Senate interim study reviewing Oklahoma's resettlement of Afghan refugees, which started taking place two years ago this month and in many ways is still ongoing today. Lionel, who organized the study and what was their goal? The study was requested by Senator Kerry Hicks, a Democrat from Oklahoma City, and was hosted by the Senate Veterans and Military Affairs Committee. The goal was to find out, you know, where the resettlement of Afghan refugees succeeded, where it failed, and how the process can be improved to make life easier for future refugees. And, uh, you know, who who showed up for that study besides the, the usual legislators? There were more than 50 people present. And, you know, all the bench seating surrounding the, the table, the conference table, was full, as well as the two rooms directly next door where they had monitors set up to stream the meeting. Um among the people there were leadership from Catholic Charities, Oklahoma City, the Sparrow Project, and the Council on American-Islamic Relations, as well as uh, some family sponsors, some sponsors of Afghan families that basically help people, help those families set up their apartments and, and take them to driving school and social welfare offices and, and the like. And they were mostly the presenters, and then they were the um, related um parties, I guess, if you will, the, you know, churches and and nonprofit workers and volunteers and such. And so what did lawmakers learn from the study? You know, the presenters focused on three primary issues faced by Afghan refugees, um, both when they began arriving and, and that they're still experiencing today. And the first is the lack of livable, quality, affordable housing. Uh, the second is difficulty in obtaining state IDs like driver's licenses and birth certificates. And then the third is one that isn't actually talked about so much, um, the state not recognizing degrees and professional certifications held by Afghans who uh, worked professional jobs in their country and are now here in Oklahoma forced to take low-end, low-wage jobs. And you were there. What, What was the big takeaway? You know, I've been following the the Afghan refugee resettlement since it began two years ago. Uh, my primary lens in reporting this topic has been that these refugees have become Oklahomans. They are Oklahomans now. And looking at it that way, what stood out to me the most about the study was that these challenges faced by refugees and the, the challenges they are facing are the same challenges vulnerable, low-income Oklahomans face every day, albeit exacerbated by their additional cultural language and documentation complications, but the problems are the same. So what are some examples of that? Well, the lack of affordable housing, for one, that's probably the main one. You know, when refugees started arriving in September 2021, they were met with a pre-existing shortage of housing. It was a time when in Oklahoma City and in Tulsa, only three or four rental homes or apartments were available for every 100. Uh, At that same time, Thousands of Oklahomans were struggling to pay their rent while they waited for emergency rental assistance, and many ended up being evicted. Another quick one is the hassle that it is to get a driver's license. The state 
test, the state driver's test, is only administered in English. So refugee sponsors had to get creative in how they managed to get people signed up for driver school and how they got them to learn the material in the in the test. Um, a lot of that was done with the help of the Sparrow Project with translators who actually were Afghan refugees. Now, uh, to what extent are we still seeing those problems? Generally speaking, they are very present in the lives of Afghan refugees uh, and low-income Oklahomans, you know, particularly those who are immigrants. There are exceptions. Some Afghans are doing well for themselves and aren't struggling to make ends meet. Uh, most are, however. Now, sometimes we see interim studies that uh, inspire a legislator to draft some legislation to address a a problem they learned about? Do we think we're going to see any legislation come out of this one? You know, it's hard to say if any legislation will come out of this review. I, I know after the meeting, lawmakers really just said that they have they had a lot to digest. Um, Carrie Hicks, Senator Carrie Hicks, said that she'll be thinking a lot about the availability of housing and, and what that housing looks like for um, people who live there. Um, now, Veronica Lazier, the deputy director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, she closed the presentation and she gave three policy recommendations. The first, build more affordable housing. That's something that she made sure to express that the charitable sector just can't do themselves or at all, really. Um, the second is to create a better system for nonprofits focused on resettlement, the state and the federal government to communicate and share resources, whether it's information or otherwise. Um, and then the third is, you know, to make it easier to get state-issued identification documents, whether it's that driver's license or a birth certificate or um, anything else that might, you know, solidify the fact that these refugees are indeed Oklahomans. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read all of Lionel's coverage of the uh, Afghan refugee resettlements and most recently the interim study the Senate conducted to look into uh, how all that went on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Reporter Paul Munnies has written several stories on Oklahoma's new law forbidding state pension systems from doing business with banks perceived to be hostile to the oil and gas industry. His latest looks at how some pension systems are looking for exemptions from the law so they don't have to divest billions of dollars in retiree assets. Paul, how many banks and financial firms are on the state's restricted company list? Yeah, so State Treasurer Todd Rush released his first version of the list back in May, and there was 13 banks and financial firms on there. He has since gone back and updated that recently. Uh, now there are just six that appear on there, including some of the biggest banks and financial companies still on there, like BlackRock, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. He did drop several of the uh, companies that were not publicly traded uh, and also a few companies that did not respond to his first version of the, sur the survey he sent out. Uh, he kind of deemed those as not complying and put them on the list for the first time. All right. Now, you've been to several of those pension board meetings, right? What What are they talking about? That's right. Yeah. Um, I've been to several of those meetings and the officials all say they, they definitely want to comply with the law. They're not ignoring it. Uh, they're kind of doing their due diligence uh, and kind of going through all the financial aspects of what a divestment might look like if their banks that they do businesses are on the list. Uh, but they're, they're kind of taking a very deliberate approach. Uh, there is a timely element in the law. 
Um, and they're supposed to divest within, I think, about 90 days of being on that list and certified on there. Now, the law has also caused some confusion with cities and counties, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, it does apply for the state's uh, seven uh, statewide pension systems, including two of the largest, the teacher retirement system and the Oklahoma Public Employees Retirement System. Uh, but it, it, there's a little unclear if it actually goes to lower levels pension systems for counties such as Oklahoma County and Tulsa County that have their own pension systems. And then there is a provision in the law that um, basically forbids uh, political subdivisions, which would be cities and counties, from contracting if they have a business of more than $100,000 with banks on the list. And so that's caused some issues in places, particularly like Stillwater, that had a loan ready to go with Bank of America and has now pulled back on that. Now, uh, some pension systems are finding it hard to replace banks on that restricted list. Why is that? That's right. Yeah, we've, we've gotten a uh, hold of one pension system, the firefighters pension system that basically has uh, State Street as what's called their custodian bank. And that's the main bank they use in the sweeping accounts, getting money back and forth from all the investments. Uh, there's really not that many banks out there that do that level of work for these kind of investment systems. Uh, in fact, there's four that are generally kind of appear to be two of those banks. Uh, State Street and J.P. Morgan are on the restricted list that the treasurer has put out for Oklahoma. And the firefighters has put out a request for proposal to get a new custodian bank because they have State Street right now. Uh, they claim that they are, it would be a lot of problems to kind of switch banks in, in that capacity. And they would like some assurances that if they do switch, that the bank they go to, which could be Northern Trust, which is one of the ones that responded, does not end up on a future version of this list, too. Now, uh, what about the state's trust funds, right? There's the commissioners of the land office, which is uh, school system money and the tobacco uh, settlement money, TSET, right? Are they subject to this law? They are not. And there's a couple of uh, attorney general kind of informal opinions basically saying these are not technical pension systems, even though they have large investments, they have huge corpuses that the interest goes to schools and for health programs from tobacco settlement money. Um, despite that, um, the commissioners of the land office voted back in June to knock BlackRock and J.P. Morgan off of their list of about 20 investment managers that invest funds for them. Uh, they did that even though they're not really applicable to the law. Uh, separately, on the TSET side, uh, there were some questions on whether or not they could uh, knock out some of their people that are involved in the list. And the attorney general, assistant attorney general said, don't do this. They're not applicable to law. And you could be opening up self-sups to legal liabilities if you do that. Now, uh, Oklahoma is not the only state that's uh, passed a law like this. Uh, who's behind this rise of, of these kinds of laws? That's right. Yeah, this kind of uh, divestment and targeting uh, banks perceived to be hostile to oil and gas has kind of really only popped up in the last two or three years. It kind of started as kind of model legislation by some conservative groups, uh, policy groups like the Heritage Foundation and allies of them. Uh, they got the first bill passed in Texas a couple years ago. Oklahoma followed suit uh, pretty soon after. And uh, now, you know, more than ha more than two dozen states have similar laws, mostly Republican-led states. And behind that still is some kind of policy groups that are kind of providing publicity, talking points to state treasurers in the states that have these laws, and providing that kind of policy support behind the scenes. All right. So what's next for the pension systems? Yeah. So they're all kind of going through their regular meetings that they, they have. And uh, the, they're now with this, the second version of this list. 
now making the hard decisions where not to try and take an exemption in the law. Now, the exemption in the law is uh, what's called a fiduciary duty. And it's basically the, the kind of oath that all the trustees take to say that they're not going to lose money on behalf of the system. Uh, and so there is a provision in the law right now that if they can determine that they are losing money by moving money around from a bank that's on the list, then they can ask for an exemption. Uh, now, the treasurer has to give that exemption, and the attorney general is the one that's enforcing the law. So we're kind of coming up to the point where in the next few weeks and months, there's going to be pension systems deciding whether or not they're going to take the exemption and whether or not the treasurer will, will accept that exemption uh, request. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can follow all of Paul's coverage of uh, that new law and what happens with the pension systems in Oklahoma that are affected by that. You'll find it all on our website at oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest investigation is about the Oklahoma School for Science and Mathematics, an elite boarding school in Oklahoma City, where female employees describe enduring years of sexual harassment and discriminatory treatment. Jennifer, OSSM is a very different kind of school. What can you tell us about it? That's right. It's probably the most unique school in the state. It is a residential school, so 11th and 12th graders um, go here, and they live on campus in dorms. Um, it's for, uh, you know, really high-achieving students, so the, you know, it's more of a college kind of structure, um, and it's separate from the, um, you know, Department of Education and the public school system. Now, your story opens uh, talking about an audit that was released in 2019. Why did you start with that? Right. So in my reporting, I actually found, um, you know, accusations and issues going way back, many, many years. Um, but I felt like this audit um, was a really big warning flag uh, to the school and school leaders. Um, this audit was issued in 2019. and. Um, you know, it was just a routine audit, but the things the auditors found out were very alarming and had little to do with finances. I mean, this had to do with management, um, you know, sexual harassment, issues like that. And they did actually put some of that in the audit, although the the public audit was, um, you know, pretty vague about that stuff. Um, there was more information in the notes and, and things like that. Now, did the school's leaders make uh, changes after the audit? Some, yeah. They, um, one of the main offenders uh, pe that people were complaining about, this manager, um, he retired. Um, so he left the campus. And, um, you know, really the, the female staff felt like there was hope that things would change. I mean, the board chair and, and a school, you know, board member really promised that the culture would improve and things would be better. Um, but it really um, uh, it continued. So what what kind of incidents are we talking about here? What did the women describe? I mean, you know, there were uh, different inappropriate comments, um, inappropriate text messages to students, um, you know, just uh, comments about women's bodies, um, you know, things like that. Um, there was also, you know, one of the major uh, complaints was that men are treated differently when it comes to employment decisions. Um, you know, they say women were often fired um, for little to no reason or for complaining 
or, you know, um, for retaliation. And yet men were not fired even after being accused of uh, inappropriate behavior. Now, uh, how did the folks in charge address those complaints as they surfaced? Um, so the, uh, pr- the I talked to the president um, who was there during a lot of this um, stuff going on. Um, he left in 2022 and they just appointed a new president. Um, but, you know, his management style was very hands off. He really preferred to counsel uh, these folks and get them on a better path. Um, you know, so some of the, you know, discipline that I heard of was like, um, you have to take an online anger management course or, um, you know, things like that. Um, they, they say there was some um, efforts, you know, internally to try to rectify these folks, but um, it, it just continued. How did you uh, get onto the story? So this actually came, uh, I got an anonymous tip uh, two years ago uh, in the summer of 2021 and started on it then. Um, this was a very desperate plea for help, um, you know, f- from someone on on campus. And I started looking into it. I really um, had difficulty getting folks to, to talk to me on the record, um, you know, set it aside for a while. And then a year later, um, I, I found Kelly uh, who's uh, the the woman who's suing the school now is the the main uh, woman in the story, um, and she wasn't ready to talk then. Um, but another year later, um, she was. So that's how it came together. All right now, you know, a lot of these um, uh, allegations surface, and you know, in in the news business, we refer to the he said, she said kind of thing where uh, somebody's pointing a finger and somebody else is denying it. And those can be really hard to uh, track down and verify uh, before you can publish it. So what kind of hurdles did you run into verifying some of these allegations? I mean, getting women to speak to me was the biggest hurdle. Um, you know, like I mentioned in the story, I, I interviewed, I think, eight or nine women total. Um, you know, Kelly's the one on the record. Um, but the other women, you know, verified and backed up, you know, all of those claims um, in in different ways. Um, I also reviewed hundreds of pages of records, uh, some public and um, some uh, that were um, given to me. So all of those things uh, helped to verify those claims. All right. And, it, you know, just uh, to kind of paint the picture, some of these allegations were pretty serious, right? There's an an incident uh, that you verified with multiple sources about an administrator uh, having sex in his office and uh, had a private shower in the office, right? And, um, uh, you know, uh, instances of of comments about um, women on staff and talking about their breast size. Uh, Another case where uh, there was an inappropriate message to a A student um, and a faculty member was quietly escorted to the airport and sent off. And I I think one of the really astonishing things that your report revealed was that they did hire um, a human resources person to try to rein some of this in and then decided uh, a year later that uh, that wasn't really doing any good, even though the human resources person was... uh, uh, said she was intimidated and bullied and discouraged from actually doing anything about any of the complaints, right? Um, it, it, 
I mean, these aren't just uh, passing comments in the hallway. Right. I mean, I think that was, um, you know, what we really tried to show with our story and, and with all of these details, um, that it really has been a culture there. And um, I think there was kind of this impression that, like, after the audit and after, you know, the one administrator, Lynn Morgan, left, um, that everything was hunky-dory, you know, and and things were better now. Um, but the women say that is absolutely not true. Um, the human resources um, person was a main recommendation from the auditors. You know, you need someone to be able to handle these complaints. Um, she was supposed to, like you know, um, create an employee handbook. They didn't have a handbook before that on, you know, how to report things and who's, you know, supposed to handle these things. And and um, they eliminated her position before any of that could get completed. All right. Uh, so what's next here? Um, so there may be some follow uh, stories. You know, I've heard from a lot of folks since this story came out. Um, I'd really love to talk to students, especially, or parents of students to see what their experience was like. Um, this first story really focused on um, the adults who run the school and and the harassment that they faced. Um, but, you know, really concerned about the students. I mean, these are probably some of the most vulnerable students in the state because they live on campus and they're not college kids. You know, they're 16, 17, 18 years old. They're high school juniors and seniors, and um, so we really want to hear from them now. Okay, and uh, for listeners, this is uh, a pretty complicated story, so we're going to do a second part of this interview on next week's podcast. In the meantime, you'll want to read Jennifer's story. You can find that on our website at oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, make sure you sign up for her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.